Welcome to Cato Audio for July 2009. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, P.J. O'Rourke traces the American love affair with the automobile. Arnold Kling weighs in on controlling health care costs. Evolutionary psychologist Lita Cosmides talks about how humans share. And Judge Andrew Napolitano of Fox News looks at the role of the government in the denial of freedoms based on race. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. Barack Obama has some plans for education in the United States. I'm glad to be joined by two of the Cato Institute's scholars in education, Neil McCluskey, Associate Director of the Center for Educational Freedom at the Cato Institute. He's also author of the book, Feds in the Classroom, and Adam Schaefer, a policy analyst at the Cato Institute. Gentlemen, welcome. So what are Barack Obama's big overarching plans for education? What did he run on? Well, I think the main thing that he's going to do is definitely supply a lot more money to education at all levels. I mean, that's been the major focus is more money, more resources. He has also talked about addressing some of the problems that we have, talked about perhaps having uh, fostering more competition in the K through 12 level, um, making it easier for people to access higher education and maybe doing something to control costs. And there are other things he's talked about, but What he says and what happens and what he's going to do and has done aren't always the same thing. And we're really at the beginning, of course, of what's going on. Now, the best example of that, and Adam Schaefer, you've looked into this pretty closely, is the case of D.C. vouchers. Now, for us, this is a local story. But for a lot of Americans, this hasn't gotten a whole lot of coverage. What did Barack Obama say he was going to do? What did he do? And what's the final result for what was, I think a pretty popular and well-received voucher program by some surprising sectors of uh, D.C. The D.C. voucher program is interesting. It is a local story, as you said, but it's gotten more national attention, I think, than uh, pretty much any other school choice program. In part, that's because it's for the nation's capital. It's also very well studied by the federal government by law, and it's been shown to be effective in improving academic achievement and very popular with parents and uh, oversubscribed. There are many more uh, families trying to get into the program than can get in. What happened is that Congress basically gave it a death sentence for next year. This is the last year it's going to be in operation if nothing changes. If Congress and the D.C. City Council don't enact a new law, it dies. 1,700 kids go uh, somewhere else back into unsafe and failing public schools. Obama initially stayed on the sidelines and uh, did nothing to help the program. Um, He recently put out in his budget funding for the program. That has no force of law, unfortunately. So the program as it stands is still going to die next year. Now, when you say given a death sentence, I just want our listeners to be clear. It has been arranged somehow in order for the program to survive both the D.C. City Council and Congress must turn their keys essentially at the same time to keep it alive. So no one could be blamed for the death of the program. That's right. It's pretty clever. It's arranged so that no one needs to do anything and it will die on its own. There was an initial outcry, but there's been a lot of confusion. Obama has added to that by putting in his budget funds for the program that Congress has no intention from what we can tell of enacting, and uh, he doesn't seem inclined to spend any political capital on saving. So Now, of course, Barack Obama's biggest spending plan thus far 
has been the stimulus bill with a lot of money for education in it. What does that break down to and what is the real impact of that, Neil? Well, it's really hard to break it down. We should say that first and foremost. What we do know is about $100 billion of the 700-some billion dollar stimulus is going to education. It's going to K-12. Some component can go to higher education and other parts. What's not clear is states will divide this up however they see fit. Some more to higher ed, some more to K-12, through and that's up to individual states. But right now, they're having difficulty even figuring out how they're supposed to divvy this up, what are the rules and regulations concerning it. And the only thing we know fairly certainly is that this money is going to be used to, to save teacher jobs, save administrator jobs. And we don't know anything beyond that. There's talk from the Obama administration about requiring real transformative change and that states lift caps on charter schools and things like that. But billions of initial dollars have already left and states haven't been required to do any of that. And so far, all we have is talk with no action and no real reforms actually being required. Adam? I think Neil is uh, exactly right. Uh, a lot of money is already out the door, and states have been very straightforward in saying that they're basically going to use a lot of these funds just to plug the holes in their own state budgets right now. Schools are in deep trouble, and uh, along with other state budget items, and um, they're basically going to use it to keep the status quo, which is spending way above what's needed and way above what's efficient and basically keep the good times rolling well past the time that they've ended. Neil? And let's be very clear about what's going on in the states because the stimulus is being touted as a way to save really struggling school districts around the country that are being cut to the bone and that that little kids will suffer immeasurable damage if this money doesn't come to those schools. The reality and the data just simply does not uphold that vision. The fact of the matter is we spent more and more in money on education. Almost every state has done the same thing year after year after year. We have smaller and smaller pupil-teacher ratios, and scores don't improve. So if anything, what has really been needed in our schools is forced efficiency, real discipline that comes with not being able to take all the money they want from taxpayers and shove it into schools. And what the stimulus is doing is insulating schools from any need to operate in any sort of efficient way. And they're doing it in the very dishonest way of saying, if we don't do this, kids will suffer and will have no future. Now, if I were Barack Obama, I would say, but Neil, we're going to spend a bunch of money on national standards And everybody knows that children who in their early years are not given the tools they need to get up to speed, their outcomes are quite diminished. So we're going to get national standards and we're going to get uh, quite possibly national pre-kindergarten. Let Adam handle the pre-kindergarten stuff because he's done a lot of studying of this recently. I'll tell you national standards. The first thing we need to keep in mind is this is a pattern for the Obama administration is they haven't been very clear to say we must have national standards. They have something called as part of the stimulus a $5 billion race to the top fund controlled by the education secretary. And what he has suggested is if states want to compete for this, they might want to have national standards. And the Obama administration has talked a lot about the need for national standards, but they've done nothing concrete to say We know X numbers of dollars we will send to states if they adopt national standards. So we have to keep in mind that the rhetoric, again, says a lot of things, but we haven't seen much concrete happen. Then the important part about national standards as a policy is there is no reason 
either logically or in evidence to believe that having one set of standards for an entire nation makes any more sense than having each state set their standards. The reality is politicians are going to set those standards no matter what level it is. And that if that's what they do, they respond to teachers unions, administrators association, those people whose livelihoods come from the schools and what they want are low standards. Adam Schaefer on pre-kindergarten. This seems to be the one area of education for young people that the government at the state or federal level doesn't have a dominant share in controlling. That's right. Uh, In most states, preschool is uh, entirely in the private sector, almost entirely in the private sector and controlled by parents, funded by parents. Um, There are some exceptions, but in recent years, there's been a huge push to expand government-funded and government-controlled preschool. States recently, uh, just as in their general education, budgets have fallen on hard times and the federal government is increasingly stepping in to fill that hole. Uh, The stimulus bill had about $5 billion worth of funds going to Head Start and other early childhood initiatives. And uh, Obama has talked a lot about this as kind of a um, cure-all. People speak of it as something that will radically change outcomes for children, which the evidence just is not there for. There's a few small-scale intensive studies that have been done that show possible long-term benefits for some subset of children, mainly very low-income and at-risk children. And if I understand your research correctly, what level of invasiveness are we talking about when we talk about effective pre-K. We're talking about in the first few months of life, one uh, study, the average age of entry into the program was four and a half months about. The other ones start three, four years old and involve uh, intensive family intervention, parenting classes and skill sessions. They're not just preschool as we think about it, playing with blocks, playing with crayons. Now, when the feds talk about this, though, are they saying these are the kind of programs that we want to scale up? Absolutely not. They're very unclear. And like Neil was pointing out, almost studiously so, they present this amorphous early childhood intervention, which we're all for getting to kids who are at risk earlier rather than later. Is the federal government the right vehicle to do that? Is it the most effective way to accomplish that? Is it the proper role of the federal government to do that? And what are they talking about? They usually speak preschool as something unobjectionable, like kids playing with blocks, when in reality, the programs that they point to for the return on investment are invasive, early, and uh, not something we'd want the federal government uh, necessarily uh, imposing on poor people. President Bush, on one of several issues where he lost a lot of credibility for Republicans was No Child Left Behind, which he touted as bringing some kind of homogenous standard for Americans. But uh, after billions of dollars, what have we seen? Well, No Child Left Behind is one of the great debated issues in education. The question is always, well, what have we gotten from No Child Left Behind? Everybody agrees we spent more money under it, although lots of people on Capitol Hill and around the country say we haven't spent enough. But you can't argue that there haven't been billions of additional dollars that came with it. But if you look at achievement data, especially the National Assessment of Educational Progress, the best you can say is that the results are ambiguous. If you look at the years that include just No Child Left Behind, there's some improvement, but not greater improvement, not faster improvement than we have in previous segments of years. And you can also look at a span of years that comes before, starts before, significantly before No Child Left Behind, but ends a little bit in the beginning. And that's where you see pretty big improvements, but there's no way to say No Child Left Behind did that. But depending on where you stand on No Child Left Behind, if you're a former Bush administration person, you say, oh, No Child Left Behind caused these great improvements, and obviously it's working. If you're not, 
And actually, if you're objective, you say, at best, we don't know what effect No Child Left Behind had. And you can credibly argue that, if anything, it has made kids do no better or a little worse because all the pressure in No Child Left Behind is for states who make the tests and write the standards, for them to set very low bars so it's easy to get over them so that they get all their federal money. So No Child Left Behind, I think if you look at it as objectively as possible, you say, we don't know for sure it didn't work, but we certainly have good reason to believe it didn't. And now the problem is, well, what does the Obama administration plan to do with it? So and, what, are, what are we likely to see from Obama and specifically this Congress that we've got for at least another 18 months? Well, this is where we get back to vagaries. The Obama administration has been very clear about only one thing. They will demand that the name of the law be changed from No Child Left Behind because it is quote unquote toxic. That is accurate. It's not a beloved law around the country. But they've been, again, very unclear about, well, what are they going to do in substance? And they seem to be pushing, and it's part of the stimulus, to maybe have national standards probably set at least initially by states acting voluntarily together to establish standards, but maybe not. We don't know. They've talked about having multiple measures and tests, so instead of one, usually multiple choice tests being the barometer for how kids are doing, they might have a test, plus portfolios of written work and and worksheets, all sorts of whatever you'd want to put in a portfolio. And they've talked about that, but there has not been a single clear proposal yet. Secretary Duncan is on right now in the middle of a long listening tour going from state to state supposedly listening to what the people have to say about No Child Left Behind, what they'd like to see done. Although, at least from media accounts, you get the impression that he's really trying to sell the stimulus and the possibility of national standards. All right. On higher education, President Obama has said that the United States has lost its edge with regard to getting degrees into the hands of young people, and he would like to reclaim that mantle of being the leader in higher education. For dedicated Cato Audio listeners, Charles Murray, when he visited the Cato Institute, talked about the BA a little bit and said, you know, maybe it's outlived its time if it ever really had a time, and uh, why do we treat the BA as a holy grail anyway? What does Barack Obama plan to do regarding conferring degrees upon people, and what does that even mean anyway? Well, in higher education, is one place you actually do have a few concrete proposals from the Obama administration, mainly because it's things he's trying to do in the budget that Congress is working on right now. So the concrete things he's talked about is, first of all, making the Pell Grant an entitlement. This is not a good thing. Basically, he would make sure the Pell Grant rises every year at the rate of inflation plus an extra point. And again, that it's an entitlement, so it's not voted on every year by Congress. The notion here is that that makes sure that low-income kids can always afford to go to college. The problem is that sets the floor that every college and university can continue to raise their tuition and make sure it become their school is no less affordable to low-income kids. His other proposal is to end the federal guaranteed loan program, where the federal government essentially backs loans that come through, quote-unquote, private lenders, banks, financial institutions, but who are everything they do is almost risk-free in student loans, at least in the FFEL program, because the federal government will pay for anything that goes wrong. And he said, it doesn't make sense that we keep paying these banks, we insure their loans, and we pay them fees. And that makes sense. 
fortunately, his response is, we'll have the federal government do direct lending to everyone. So now all your loans come right from the Treasury. The danger is, even though it's good not to keep subsidizing companies, you then have federal government as the only loan provider. And more important than that, I should say, is that this does nothing to stop the flow of cheap, cheap taxpayer-funded loans to students that they take to school so that they can get the nicest recreation facilities and they can get you know the, the Fridays off and the best professors with two kids in a class and get all sorts of amenities they like and that schools can continue to charge higher and higher tuition rates. So it does nothing to address the affordability problem. I just wanted to interject, uh, Neil, uh, describe to us the Tiger Grotto as one of the premier things that this extra funding gets you, uh, not necessarily a a high-class education, but certainly high-class recreation. Well, to our listeners in Missouri in particular, you should be upset because the Tiger Grotto is a recreation facility I don't know, it's built five years ago by the University of Missouri, and it involves uh, a, a number of things. Basically, you're, you're transported to Bermuda without leaving Missouri, and so they have the lazy river that you can float around on an inner tube, and they have big saunas and hot tubs and fake palm trees, and they have waiters and waitresses in uh, floral print shirts who will deliver protein shakes and all sorts of things. And this is all in the middle of a university where supposedly what's supposed to be happening is education. But let's be clear, because of taxpayer funding, the days of education where you essentially live in a monastic cell and study all day, get your knowledge and then leave are long gone. And colleges have become, in many cases, a place where you go for an a vacation that happens to have classes interspersed in it. President Obama has talked about competition. That was one of his uh, rallying cries during the campaign was competition among schools to get better results. And that's certainly popular among parents. We've reached the point, I think, in the conversation about education where you can no longer deny that competition is necessary and it's desired. You can't simply stand up for a socialist monopoly, which is what public schooling is, and have people believe that you have any credibility as a reformer. But the problem, as has been repeated ad nauseum here, is that While President Obama and then, and previously candidate Obama, talked a lot about the need for competition, we've seen no concrete proposals to indicate how we'd actually help to foster that along. Adam Schaefer? That's right. I think candidate and President Obama uh, talked a big game about charter schools, competition through charter schools. He's, he's talked a lot about promoting those. Unfortunately, he hasn't said what he means by a good charter law. He's talked about accountable charter schools, and, and that's code in uh, a lot of teacher union circles for regulation that would make them essentially indistinguishable from regular public schools. He's also talked about uh, teacher pay for performance. He hasn't, again, defined what that means, and a lot of teachers' unions support that. Unfortunately, they mean not measuring student success, but going and getting an extra master's on some uh, theory of education. So it's really unclear where he's going to deliver, how he's going to deliver, and in the meantime, he's busying himself with being complicit in killing things like the D.C. voucher program, which institute real competition among schools and allow parents the ultimate choice. I think one thing we shouldn't forget, we could actually be very well off if Obama only talks about competition. Because talking is what the president under the Constitution is allowed and able to do in education. So it wouldn't be bad if he just talked and provided no concrete proposals, especially if that was out of principle. The problem is he talks a lot about competition 
and doesn't believe that the federal government and the role of the president is just to use the bully pulpit. And so if he provides, if he pushes policies and he talks about competition and then ignores competition with those policies, then we have the worst of both worlds. All right, gentlemen, we'll have to leave it there. Adam Schaefer, policy analyst at the Cato Institute, and Neil McCluskey, associate director for educational freedom at the Cato Institute and author of the book Feds in the Classroom. You can get your copy of it at our website, catostore.org. The American love affair with the automobile may be at an untimely end, so says Cato Institute Mencken Research Fellow P.J. O'Rourke. O'Rourke visited the Cato Institute in June to talk about his new book, Driving Like Crazy, and the freedom that cars deliver to us all. The feminists grabbed our women, the liberals banned our guns, the health cops snuffed our cigarettes, the bailout has our funds, the laws of breathalyzing put an end to our roadside bars, circle the Fords and Chevys, boys, they're coming to take our cars. (laughs) Finally got through to them what it is, what it is that cars have to do with libertarianism. And it is time, alas, to say, how shall we put it? Sayonara to the American car. The American automobile companies, Ford, GM, even Chrysler, they will live on in some form, kind of a Marley's ghost dragging their chains at taxpayer expense, you know. The fools in the corner offices of Detroit and the fool officials of Detroit's unions, they will retire to their vacation homes in Palm Beach and St. Pete. And uh, they no more deserve our sympathy than do the malevolent trolls under the Capitol Dome down the street here. But pity the poor American car when Congress and the White House get through with it. A lightweight vehicle with a small carbon footprint using alternative energy and renewable resources to operate in a sustainable way. When I was a kid, we called it a Schwinn. (laughs) Oh, well, you know, I mean, it's been a great run. It's been a great run. 110 years since the Duryea brothers built the first American car in Springfield, Massachusetts. Now, if the Duryea Motor Wagon Company had been a success... Springfield, Massachusetts might be today's motor city, full of abandoned houses, unemployment, drug dealing, violent crime, and racial tensions, which, come to think of it, Springfield, Massachusetts is full of anyway. uh, But we owe the American car a lot more than just the entertaining spectacle of Detroit's various felon mayors. In fact, many people my age owe our very existence to the car, or to the car's back seat. Where if our birth date and our parents' wedding anniversary is a bit too close to com- for comfort, <laughs> it's, it's probably where we were conceived. You know, there was no premarital sex in America before the invention of the internal combustion energy. <laughs> engine. I mean, talk about libertarianism here. Come on. You mean, you couldn't sneak a girl into the rec room at your house because your mom and dad were unable to commute, so they were home all day working on the farm. And your farmhouse didn't have a rec room because recreation had not been invented due to all the farm work. You could take a girl out in a buggy, but it was hard to get her in the mood to let you bust into her corset because the two of you were facing the hind end of a horse. (laughs) Spoils the atmosphere. You see, so cars, cars let us out of the barn, you know, and while they were at it, they destroyed the American nuclear family. And anyone who's had an American nuclear family knows what a relief that was. Um... (laughs) 
Cars also caused America to be paved. And there are much worse things you can do to a country than pave it, as the Sudanese have been proving in Darfur. And do we car people ever hear a single word of thanks for paving the nation from all those skateboarders and body casts? No, no, I don't know. No. Cars fulfilled the Americans' founding father's dream and ideal. Of all the truths that we hold to be self-evident, of all the unalienable rights with which we are endowed, what is the most important to the American dream? It is right there, front and center, raison d'etre of the Declaration of Independence, freedom to leave. Freedom to leave. Freedom to get the hell out of town. Founding fathers, can I have the keys? You know? Carr provided America with an enviable standard of living. You could not get a steady job with high wages and health benefits and retirement uh, uh, plan working on the General Livestock Corporation assembly line putting udders on cows. The American car was a source of intellectual stimulation. Think of the innovation, the invention, the sheer genius that transformed the 1908 Model T Ford into the 1968 Shelby Cobra GT500 in the course of one man's lifetime, single lifetime, full of speeding tickets. You compare this to the previously fashionable mode of human transportation, horse design and production hasn't changed thousands of years, thousands of years. When it comes to creativity, you you know, nobody thought to put a stirrup on a saddle until about 500 A.D., Thousands of years, people were riding horses, and they didn't think up the stirrup until 500 days. Where'd they put their feet? I, you know, now, if automobile engineering and development had proceeded at that pace, we would be powering ourselves down the road by running with our feet stuck through a hole in the floor like Fred Flintstone, you know, which, and it may come to that with the 2010 Obama-mobile. From a patient's point of view, the ideal health insurance policy would offer immediate and unlimited access to medical services with basically no cost. Unfortunately, it's just not feasible to offer that to everyone. Arnold Kling, author of the Cato book Crisis of Abundance, spoke to a Capitol Hill audience in June about what truly drives excess costs in American health care. For more on Cato's solutions to the big problems in American health care, you can visit our new reform-minded website healthcare.cato.org. Healthcare costs are driven to a large extent by extravagant use of medical procedures that have high costs and low benefits. So I think in general, you know, healthcare policy wonks understand this. The healthcare policy wonk that was interviewed in the thing six weeks ago is Barack Obama. Obama, I think if he and I were sitting on a panel in a relatively private setting discussing health care and what's going on, I don't think we would be that far apart. But as a politician and president, he has other responsibilities, and I think those other responsibilities will lead him to deal with health care in a way that's very different from what a policy wonk would deal with. Okay, so that's sort of a, a prelude to this. Let me just whip through the five points about the economics of health care, and these are, again, all, all in the book, Crisis of Abundance. First, uh, picture a triangle with the top is sustainability, affordability, a sustainable, affordable health care system. 
over here is a system where people have unlimited access to procedures. That is, there's no rationing of health care. And then over here is people have, don't have to pay for their health care services. They're insulated from having to pay for them. And so what we want as individuals is to have unlimited access to medical services without having to pay for them. As we want to be at these, include both these points in the triangle. The problem with that is that if you give everybody unlimited access to medical services without having to pay for them, what you end up with is an unsustainable, affordable, unaffordable system. So you have a problem with the top of the triangle. And you can't be at all three points in the triangle at the same time. That's kind of my first point. And where I think the debate has logically should be, assuming that we understand the need for a sustainable, affordable health care system, the debate is between how you're going to achieve that, whether you're going to restrain people's use of medical services by rationing or by self-restraint based on people confronting the cost of their services and having to pay more out of pocket and make different decisions based on the uh, having to pay out of pocket. So it, it, the real debate ought to be between rationing by centralized management or rationing by the decentralized price system. I've never met anyone from the left who wants to have that toe-to-toe -to -toe debate. They've got all sorts of debating tactics for evading that. I've never actually engaged in that debate. It would, be, it would be, I could debate that from either side, by the way. I could make a case that it would be morally superior to have government do rationing. I mean, I don't believe ultimately that is the, the right answer. I think that's, you know, I don't think the left is hopeless if they try to get into that debate, but they'd rather not. Okay, so that's the first point is that there's this triangle. You can't be at all three points on the triangle. Second point is that there's a large gray area in medicine. The gray area is procedures that are neither absolutely necessary nor absolutely unnecessary. In the uh, handout with the interview with the wonk with Barack Obama, he mentions that his grandmother had terminally ill cancer and had hip surgery. And you can see from the tone of it, he's not really sure that that hip surgery was really worthwhile in the end because you know, her health went downhill rapidly afterward. And ironically, there's a lot of similarity with, between that and uh, what I experienced with my father about a year and a half ago. Again, terminally ill cancer, hip surgery, and then just a rapid downhill from that. You know, that's a morally fraught issue, and that's, you know, so it's, um, it, it's maybe a more extreme example of the gray area of maybe it's not absolutely necessary, maybe it's not absolutely unnecessary. There are plenty of other examples of the gray area. The one I like to use the most is, uh, for those of us over 50, happy birthday, you're supposed to get a routine colonoscopy screening to screen for colon cancer. And that's not absolutely necessary. In Canada, they don't do that. In Canada, they don't have the equipment or the specialists needed to do colonoscopy screenings on healthy people as a screening for colon cancer. And that may be the right decision. I, I wouldn't be surprised if the cost per life saved from that doing that is you know, on the order of a million dollars or perhaps more. And so from a bureaucrat's point of view, you could say, well, you know, if I'm going to optimize the mix of services, I'm not going to spend a million dollars to save a life by putting everybody through colon over 50 through colonoscopy screening every five years. More likely what they're saying is 
of all the ways to ingratiate ourselves with voters, colonoscopy screenings is not, you know, that's not going to win a whole lot of popularity contests. So maybe that's, that's why we don't allocate a whole lot of resources to that. I can see a lot of people are too young to appreciate what experiencing a colonoscopy is like, so you don't realize that, that that's not a way to win a popularity contest. So it's not absolutely necessary that you go through this protocol of uh, having a colonoscopy screening every five years. Having said that, I go through that protocol. I've looked at the research on it. I buy into it. I mean, it's a, it really is a way of preventing colon cancer. And not just spotting it early, but actually preventing. So I would say that the colonoscopy protocol is not absolutely unnecessary either. It's not absolutely necessary, not absolutely unnecessary. And I think it's very important to understand this gray area. Peter Orszag, who was the head of the Congressional Budget Office, is now head of the Office of Management Budget, will throw out this figure, 30% of health care spending in this country is unnecessary. And it's helpful and unhelpful for him to say that. It's helpful in the sense that it points out where the really big driver of excess costs is in healthcare spending in the U.S. comes from our choice of medical procedures. So in that sense, it's helpful to say something like 30% unnecessary. But it's also very unhelpful to use the term unnecessary as if this is a binary issue, that there's a very bright line dividing necessary and unnecessary health care. Because the truth is there's a huge gray area. My guess is that the amount of spending on procedures that is absolutely unnecessary is probably way less than 5%. It's not nowhere near 30%. On the other hand, the, the amount that's spent on clearly necessary procedures might only be a quarter. And then in the middle is this huge gray area, two-thirds or more of spending that's neither absolutely necessary nor absolutely unnecessary. So that's my second point, that there's a very big gray area. Peter Orszag talks about doing comparative effectiveness research. I'm actually all for comparative effectiveness research, but I don't think it's going to create a dividing line between absolutely necessary and absolutely unnecessary. I think what it's going to do is going to shed more light on this gray area, but it's not going to dictate what ought to be done in every case. It's not going to dictate to individual doctors or individual patients what the right choice should be. At most, it'll give a little bit more statistical guidance but it is not going to divide the world into necessary and unnecessary procedures. There will still be a large gray area. We'll just know a little bit more about some of the probabilities involved. We know modern humans respond to incentives, however imperfectly, but how did early humans divide resources and responsibility? And how do our relatively primitive brains trip us up when we try to solve modern problems? Evolutionary psychologist Lita Cosmides addressed those questions at a Cato Institute City Seminar in Santa Barbara. A lot is now known about hunter-gatherer life. A lot of anthropologists have gone and studied hunter-gatherers in many places. There's archaeology of hunter-gatherers and so forth. And hunter-gatherer life is cooperative, for sure. But it's not an orgy of indiscriminate cooperation. There are several alternative sharing rules that hunter-gatherers use, even within the same cultural group. And 
one of the most important triggers for these alternative sharing rules are perceptions of variance that are due to luck versus effort. Do you perceive that outcomes, people's outcomes in terms of how much food they get and so forth, are mostly due to effort that they put into it or mostly due to luck? So for example, for meat, in a lot of these populations, out of every 10 times that you go hunting, uh, like 40% of the time you'll come back with nothing. So there's very high variance among hunter-gatherers in hunting with the variance due to luck and frequent reversals of fortune. So I come back with nothing today and you have something. And what they do is they pool risk. They pool risk uh, to deal with these frequent reversals of fortune. Um, you come back with something today, uh, you share it with me where I come back with nothing. But tomorrow, it's, it, because a lot of this has to do with luck, tomorrow you're going to come back with nothing and I share it with you. So they tend to share meat and high-variance resources due to luck at the band-wide level. And this is closest to the sharing rule from each according to his ability to each according to his need. But not all resources are shared that way. It's the ones that are high-variance due to luck. Gathered foods, for example, plant foods, are gathered. Uh, the variance in outcomes is very low. And, it, and what variance exists is due to effort. How much time do I spend digging up tubers or gathering nuts? This is what determines the outcomes. And for those foods, the very same human beings share in a different way. They share within the family, and they share via reciprocation with particular reciprocation partners where they can monitor for cheating. So you see this grammar of social life and of sharing. These are grammar, it's a grammar of sharing where luck versus effort are the triggers. And you see this shaping cultural transmission in political debates in our society. So for example, consider political debate on homelessness. What people argue about is whether people are homeless due to bad luck or whether they are homeless due to low effort. They don't argue about what follows from this. In other words, they argue about the premise here. Is this premise true or is this premise true? They never argue about what follows from that, right? They don't have to. It's part of human nature to have the intuition that sharing follows from the bad luck and that something else follows from the differences in effort. This doesn't always have the outcomes people want. I mean, probably most of you are familiar with the Tucker studies of rent control. Rent control was meant to help homelessness, but in fact, it seems to create homelessness. We don't live in an, and the kinds of societies that we lived in before. We live in a complex society of markets where you need to analyze the consequences of policies to really know what's going to happen, which is one of the things that Cato does. It's complicated. It doesn't work with our intuitions anymore. You also find in lots of political discourse arguments about what social unit does our mind interpret as the band where we share widely, right? And so I don't know if you remember Mario Cuomo's address to the Democratic National Convention. He was trying to convince you all that the nation is a family, right? You share widely within the family if you're a hunter-gatherer. And so he's, he's trying to frame the whole situation as the nation is a family. Why is he doing that? He's doing that because that triggers a psychology of sharing widely, of redistribution. So a lot of these evolved moral intuitions, they're affecting our, the way that we frame political debates. How did this happen in America? How were the Constitution and laws of the land twisted so as to institutionalize racism? And how did it or will it end? Judge and Fox News judicial analyst Andrew Napolitano addresses these questions in his new book, Dred Scott's Revenge. A Legal History of Race and Freedom in America. He spoke at the Cato Institute's Hayek Auditorium in June. I think that uh, I was on the bench 
probably about a week when they assign you small claims. You know, you walk out into a courtroom, there's about this many people in the courtroom. You have about five minutes for each case. The cases go like this. The dry cleaner ruined my blouse, but he also tried to pick up my sister. So a lawyer comes up to me and he says, uh, Your Honor, I, I have a client that doesn't speak any English. We need a translator. We need a tr the Italian translator in the courthouse. I call the administrator's office and the translator is busy in another courtroom. So I say to the throngs, is there anybody in this room that can speak Italian? Little guy in the back raises his hand. He comes up. We swear in this translator to tell the truth. We administer the oath to the witness. And here's exactly literally what happens. Lawyer to translator, give the court your name. Translator to witness, what is a your name? <laughs> it's all right. Let me see where this is going to go. Lawyer to translator, tell the court your address. Translator to witness, where is your house? I looked at this guy, I said, I thought you told me that you could speak Italian. He said, I can, Your Honor, but my English issues are not so good. One time I was speaking a jury in New Jersey, as in the federal system and as in many states, the judge actually picks the jury. And again, you're confronted with a crowd about this size and you have to extract 12 people who have no bias, no interest in the outcome, no prejudice about the defendant or the state and no knowledge of the facts in the case. So you begin to ask questions to wheedle the group down. And I say to the crowd, is there anybody here that can't serve on this case. It was a criminal case. The allegations, the indictment against the defendant was drug distribution. Little woman in the back raised her hand and she says, I can't be on this case because of my occupation. Well, I thought to myself, what could she possibly do? I said, all right, madam, what do you do? She said, I'm a soothsayer. Oh, who the heck calls themselves a soothsayer? in 1995. So I fall for this. I said, okay, how does that keep you from being on this jury? She said, judge, I already know how the case ends up. <laughs> I should have said, tell us and save us the next three weeks in the courtroom. So from a ridiculous trial, these two that I'm telling you about, to one of the most serious in the history of the world, in which the defendant is presenting his own defense to the jury. And he says this, you'll know these words from the play and from the movie, but they are literally extracted from the trial. Some men say the earth is flat and some men say it is round. But if it is flat, can the parliament's laws make it round? And if it is round, can the king's command flatten it? It was, of course, Thomas Moore arguing in his trial for high treason, the alleged and, by their standards, proven acts of treason, where his refusal to assent to the king being head of the church on earth. He was appealing, of course, not only to the common sense of his jury, but also to their understanding of the natural law. Of course, the parliament can't change the shape of the earth. And of course, the king can't do so either, even though they both behaved as if they could. We fast forward a couple of hundred years, and Jefferson, notwithstanding his personal behavior, my hero amongst American presidents, because he believed that the individual was greater than the state, and the state is greater than 
than the federal government. Jefferson argues in the Declaration of Independence, you know these words, every school child does, that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and that among these is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. He weds to the American soul the natural law, the same argument that Thomas Moore was making, that our rights come from our humanity as a gift from God. Jefferson rejects, though the Constitution in some parts accepts, the idea of positivism, which is what all the big government types in both parties believe today. They believe that our rights come from the government, not from our humanity, and that the same government that grants our rights can ungrant them. They even believe that our rights can be taken away from us by an, a, a law of the Congress or an edict of the president, like you're an enemy combatant, and therefore all your rights are taken away from you. Well, this, of course, directly rejects the Thomas More understanding, which is the Thomas Aquinas understanding of, of rights passed from the creator, who's perfectly free, through his creatures who are perfectly free. Obviously, we are perfectly free. Look at the abuse of free will every day. This is such a great gift from God. He uses, a, he, he permits us to use it with utter freedom, to abuse it in the most horrific ways, but we only have it because it is his gift. So with that as a premise, and if you, if you know my thoughts and my work, and if you have seen my previous books, you know that I hold myself out as an unabashed champion of the natural law, and I've argued in, in almost every forum that will hear me, that will have me, that it is a natural restraint on all government, I decided uh, to write this book. I mean, we live in an era in which the natural law is utterly disregarded. It is, it, it is trashed by government as much as the Constitution itself is. So Dred Scott is a metaphor. This book is not about Dred Scott, though there is a chapter about his case because it is so fascinating. Dred Scott is a metaphor for a government a, a series of governments, state governments and the federal government, that notwithstanding the lofty words of the Declaration of Independence and notwithstanding some efforts to incorporate those ideas into the Constitution via the Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments, a government that would think it could write any law, enact any policy, and enforce any program, notwithstanding its utter rejection of the natural law. So, how could the same generation that wrote all men are created equal possibly have enforced slavery? I can't answer that in this book, but I want to stir the pot about it. The book starts with the slave trade and ends with the election of Barack Obama as president. And it uses the Dred Scott case, as I said, as a prism through which to examine what governments would do, like... One of the first laws that George Washington, the father of our country, signed was the Fugitive Slave Act, which made you immune from a state kidnapping law if you in a northern state kidnapped a runaway slave and forced that person back to his owner. Interesting, the debate going on today about state nullification. Montana is attempting to nullify certain federal firearms regulations. In, in 1834, the legislature of Massachusetts purported to nullify the fugitive slave law and said to law enforcement personnel 
in Massachusetts. If anybody kidnaps a fugitive slave in Massachusetts, you are to prosecute them for kidnapping because we don't recognize the fugitive slave law. Nevertheless, it was signed into law by the father of our country, who, when the capital of the country was in Philadelphia and the legislature of Pennsylvania outlawed slavery, they put a clause in the statute saying all slaves in the state of Pennsylvania must be freed within six months of their entry into the state. So what do you think George and Martha did with the slaves from Mount Vernon? They rotated them through every five and a half months so that the president and his retinue and his wife in Philadelphia could have all the slaves they wanted servicing them uh, without being in technical violation, though obviously being in violation of the spirit of the Pennsylvania statute. I make a lot of enemies when I tell people that I think that the worst president in American history and the one with least fidelity to the Constitution was Abraham Lincoln. And I make a lot of enemies when I say that. I haven't made the enemies amongst the people that signed the paychecks at Fox yet. So I do keep saying these things. And I, I make the arguments in here about Lincoln's true purpose in the Civil War. It was not to free the slaves. If you read both portions of the Emancipation Proclamation, you must read the second portion, which probably was not described to you by your public school teachers, in which the so-called great emancipator specifically authorized the institution of slavery in four border states, in the city of New Orleans and in the six parishes surrounding New Orleans. The Dred Scott case is, is a lesson for us today because of the manner in which uh, the Supreme Court addressed this. If you're a lawyer, it's a tortuous and fascinating procedural history. But to break it down to its essentials, Dred Scott is born as a slave in Virginia and after a series of masters, finds himself in Illinois where he sues for his freedom. The case eventually makes its way to Missouri in the era of the Missouri Compromise and eventually the case makes its way to the Supreme Court of the United States. Now, in those days... The Supreme Court did not issue opinions the way it does today. That is, they didn't sit around a table and decide, all right, five to four, six to three, seven to two. Each justice wrote his own. There were no female justices, of course, in those days. Each justice wrote his own opinion. And whatever the vote was after they saw each other's opinion, that's what it was. In this case, we have Roger Brooke Tawney, who is the former attorney general of, uh, of the state of Maryland, and who's an adversary, a political adversary of Lincoln, much like, if you would, uh, Chief Justice John Marshall and his first cousin with whom he never spoke, Thomas Jefferson. They were political adversaries. So Roger Brooke Tawney, thinking that he can forestall the Civil War, could have written, once a slave, always a slave, because slaves were deemed property in half the country, or once set free, always set free, because he was at one point in his life, set free. Instead, the Chief Justice comes down with an opinion that is the worst of all possible resolutions of this, and as we know from what happened five years later, it didn't resolve anything, and that is, we can't hear your case, Mr. Scott, because you're not a person. Because under the Constitution, you're not a person, and only persons can bring matters into the federal court system. Now, you may say, well, that happened in the 1850s. It's not going to happen in our lifetimes. It happened in 1973, January 22nd, 1973, 
when the Supreme Court issued, I don't know which is the worst case, but it's among these two. It's either Dred Scott or Roe versus Wade. Roe versus Wade, which articulated that babies in the womb are not persons, and so no one can sue in their behalf, and they can be slaughtered up to the moment of birth. My own home state of New Jersey uh, permits abortion up to the moment of birth, and if you can't afford it, the state will pay for you. They claim that that's in the New Jersey Constitution. Now, I took an oath to uphold the New Jersey Constitution. I've read it many times. I assure you it's not there. But these are examples, historic and modern, of government thinking that it can do away with the natural law, that it can suspend the free will of a class of human beings, whether it is blacks, up to the time of the civil rights revolution in the 60s. I mean, in many respects, Jim Crow was just another form of slavery, and the Supreme Court spawned that with Plessy versus Ferguson. Yes, you can separate the races as long as you treat them equally. The equal treatment obviously was a farce, and it didn't begin to unravel until Brown versus Board of Education. I'll make a little confession to you. When I was in law school and college and even as a young lawyer, I thought and argued that Brown versus Board of Education was unconstitutional because the issue of education is not cognizable by the federal system until I began studying a little deeper Aquinas and Jefferson and the notion of, of the natural law. The government can't treat people differently on the basis of the color of their skin. And judges in this country must use the natural law to eradicate racism or any behavior that violates the natural law from the armament of the government. Just as George W. Bush can't say to Jose Padilla, you have no rights just because I declare you to be an enemy combatant, thereby violating a host of Mr. Padilla's natural rights. George Washington can't say to African Americans, you may be kidnapped if you escape by whites just because you are politically impotent and just because a majority in the Congress says so. When Jeremiah Wright, you remember him, the president listened to those uh, sermons for a number of years. When those sermons were being played and played over and over again in the media, uh, a little, little over a year ago, and it looked like Senator Obama was going to lose the race for the nomination, I began to get letters and emails and a lot of callers on the radio from sincere African-Americans who were saying to me, you know, some of the stuff he is saying is a metaphor. He may be saying the U.S. government caused AIDS and gave it to black men, but judge, take a look at the Tuskegee experiment, about which there is a chapter in my book in which the United States Public Health Service in 1932 persuaded hundreds, hundreds of black men to come under the care of the Public Health Service and that it would cure them of syphilis. It gave them syphilis. It did not cure them of anything. It monitored their bodily functions as they slowly and painfully wasted away from a disease that your government and mine gave to them and lied to the world about. It would take of all people, Richard Nixon in 1972, who couldn't believe that he had been vice president for eight years and president for four years before he knew that the health service was doing this, to put an absolute stop to it. All the time, 
we need to watch the government. It's one of the reasons that Cato came into existence. It's one of the reasons that so many of us uh, risk comfort to defend freedom. Any government that thinks that it can suspend the free will of a class of human beings because of the color of their skin or their age or their political unpopularity or the declaration of one person, the president, any government that is strong enough to do that and can get away with it is a government that is dangerous indeed and a government that we need to be careful when monitoring. Unfortunately, the positivists and the collectivists and the big government types rule the day and have consistently, at least since the era of FDR, maybe since the era of Woodrow Wilson, perhaps since the era of Abraham Lincoln. At my alma mater, Princeton, Woodrow Wilson is revered. He was the president of Princeton and then the governor of New Jersey and then the president of the United States, who, whose grand ideas about making the world safe for democracy were picked up in a perverse way years later by George Bush. Woodrow Wilson segregated the federal government. The federal government and the military were integrated until this president from Virginia born in Virginia, educated, raised, spent his professional uh, life in New Jersey, decided that people had to be separated by race. Even FDR didn't have the courage to desegregate the federal government and the military. Harry Truman did it with the stroke of a pen. I couldn't believe that it hadn't been done before that. I'm not a fan of Harry Truman, but I say this to you to indicate the ease with which certain old shibboleths and traditions can be swept away when it is clear from the prism of our present lives that those old traditions violate the natural law. So where are we today? We have a biracial president, objectively a very good thing. I don't see a black man when I criticize his activity on the economy and other things that he has done. I see an articulate, handsome, intelligent liberal who's doing what he said he would do for the most part and capture the imagination of the public. I see someone who maybe, maybe can help us enter a post-racial part of our history. Unfortunately, his respect for the Constitution is just as bad, maybe even worse than his predecessors. The obligation of contract, forget about it. The sanctity of private uh, property, it's history the uh, ability of people to pool their investments and make them prudently as they wish without having to get the government's permission, about to be gone. Who's going to monitor this? The Federal Reserve. Look, the job of the CIA is to steal and to keep secrets. We know more about the CIA than we do the Federal Reserve. And that's the, the great super secret bank that he wants to give the power to regulate virtually any human activity in the United States, which in the opinion of the Federal Reserve, should it fail, would affect liquidity. Now they can define fail, affect, and liquidity however they want. What's the point of all this? A disregard for your natural right to contract. A disregard, an utter disregard to due process. Madison wrote, the government shall not take life, liberty, or property without due process. That means a trial. That doesn't mean a statute or a, an executive order. It means a trial. Don't 
hold your breath. Jefferson. Jefferson's a stumbling block, especially for people like I, who loved and love many of the things he wrote and did and said. Jefferson introduced legislation when he was the governor of Virginia, this is hard to believe, to abolish slavery in Virginia. It didn't pass. Some have argued he introduced it so he could sort of get credit for introducing it because he knew it would never pass, but it didn't pass. Jefferson, as the president of the United States, signed the law pursuant to the Constitution invalidating uh, the slave trade. Jefferson wrote words that would later be condemned by the pro-slavery crowd in the South. They would blame him for getting the ball rolling with all men are created equal. But at the time he wrote those words, he had over 200 slaves, with one of whom there is now ample evidence to conclude. He lived in an intimate relationship for 40 years and fathered seven children. Well, that's not why the pro-slavery crowd a generation later would blast him because he had sex with a black woman and she lived with him as his mistress in Paris, in Philadelphia, and in the White House, which he designed, but because he wrote that all men are created equal. He also wrote, when the people fear the government, there is tyranny. When the government fears the people, there is liberty. And when we defend the natural law, and when we insist the government stay within the footprint of the Constitution, the government will be afraid of us. We are now facing some of the most sweeping changes healthcare has seen in decades. Reform is needed. But increasing government control over the economy and important private health care decisions is bad medicine. Cato has assembled a comprehensive website on the state of health care and reform initiatives. It's healthcare.cato.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.